You're listening to The Brendan Murata Show. One of the best-selling books of 1956 does not exist. In 1956, radio host Gene Shepard was annoyed with all of the people who pretended to have read books that they had not actually read, with all of the fakes and phonies. And so what he did is he asked his radio audience to help him concoct a fake book and see if they could get it on the bestseller list. And once they did, see how many people pretended to have read the book when they clearly hadn't because it didn't exist. So late at night, Shepard and his radio audience came up with a fake book called I Libertine by Frederick R. Ewing. And they decided to go into bookstores and just ask if they had a copy of the book. Now, in this day and age, the bestseller lists were determined by the number of requests for a book in a bookstore. Remember, this is the 1950s, pre-computers, a little harder to look things up. So hundreds of people went into bookstores all across the country and said, do you have a copy of I Libertine? And of course, the bookstores would say, well, we don't have that listed anywhere. But by the third or fourth person who came in asking for the book, they were calling up publishers and distributors saying, do you have a copy? We need to get this in stock. So many people are asking for it. And because of the demand for the book in bookstores, it wound up on the New York Times bestseller list. Now, here's where the story gets really ridiculous. People across the country begin to talk about this book and claim to have read it. There are multiple reviews and columns on it in various newspapers across the country, including the New York Times and the Village Voice. There's articles on it in Time Magazine, in Life, in Newsweek. People who are fans of the radio show, who are in on the hoax, who know it's a hoax, who know the book doesn't exist, begin telling stories and calling into the show saying, I was talking to friends of mine and I brought up this book and... They claimed to have read it, and they had opinions on it. One columnist even claimed to have had lunch with the author of the book. Now, this hoax starts in April, and it's not until August that one reporter actually tracks down the radio host and gets to the bottom of the hoax. One reporter from the Wall Street Journal calls up Gene Shepard publishes an article on it in August saying this book actually doesn't exist. Now, something very interesting happened after the hoax of I Libertine was exposed. But before we get to that, I think there's some interesting lessons and questions that this story brings up. First, it's clear from this story that very often the thing that everyone is talking about in culture whether it's a book or a movie or a particular news story, it's possible that many of the people talking about it have not actually read it. And that many of the things people have opinions about, they haven't actually researched. And one of the questions we might ask in response to this story is, what are the I libertines today? What are the things that everyone is talking about that they haven't actually read? I thought about this as I was working on my book, Children's Justice, because Children's Justice required me to read a lot of different works of social justice literature and books on critical theory. 
books that very often everyone was talking about, that they were heavily cited in academic literature. But I found when I actually read them myself, there was something very different there than what I had been told was there by both people who like those books and people who don't like those books. And this is what I've always found every time I've read a classic work of literature, uh, everyone from Nietzsche to the Bible, when I have found I've actually read it, it was different than what people had said when they were talking about it. And it makes me wonder how many of those classic works of literature that people talk about they've actually read and how many that they were pretending to have read the same way that there were many columnists writing about a book that didn't even actually exist. It makes me think you could probably create a fake historical document and get it inserted into the literature and no one would even know. So the question is, what are the hoaxes like that today? The books that everyone claims to have read that maybe they haven't actually. This is actually one of the accusations that people make in response to criticisms of critical social justice or critical theory. They'll say, you haven't actually read it or you don't understand it. Now, as someone who has read a lot of critical social justice and theory this past year, sometimes that accusation is true and sometimes it's not. But I could forgive some people for not actually having read these works. They're often very complex. In fact, I'm gonna read you a slight bit now from an essay called, Can the Subaltern Speak? Let me find the page here. This is a very famous essay in post-colonial theory. And I'm just gonna read you the first paragraph in my copy. And bear with me, this is a long quotation, but there is a purpose for it. Women outside the mode of production narrative mark the points of fade out in the writing of disciplinary history, even as they mime, quote, such as such, quote, footnotes of the trace, parentheses, of someone, of something, we are ob obliged mistakenly to ask, end parentheses, that effaces they disclose. If, as Jameson suggests, the mode of production narrative is the final reference, these women are insufficiently represented or representable in that narration. We can docket them, but we cannot grasp them at all. The possibility of possession, of being haunted, is cut by the imposition of tough reasonableness of capital's mode of exploitation. Or, to tease out Marx rather than follow Jameson, the mode of production narrative is so efficient because it is constructed in terms of the most efficient and abstract coding of value, the economic. Thus, to represent an earlier intuition, the ground-level value codings that write these women's lives elude us. These codes are measurable only in the parentheses, ebb and flow, and parentheses, mode of total or expanded form, which is, quote, defective, unquote, from a rationalistic point of view. We pay the price of epistemically fractured transcending when we explain them as general exemplars of anthropological descriptions. Did you understand that? That was a bit of a mouthful, wasn't it? I read this entire essay, and I could forgive someone if they didn't actually read the original text of this. But it's considered, again, one of the most famous essays in post-colonial theory. It's hugely important. It's very influential. Now, 
if you didn't understand that, I I would understand because I had to read that a couple times and break down each word just to get everything that was there. But here is a summary of that essay, or at least the main point from it, from a book called Subalternity and Representation, Arguments in Cultural Theory by John Beverly. Spivak is the author of that essay, by the way, so hear him reference Spivak in this quick summary. Spivak is trying to tell us that almost by definition, the subaltern is subaltern in part because it cannot be represented by academic knowledge. That's a pretty good summary of the essay. Let me read you what I put in my book when I summarize this idea of the subaltern, which is what this essay is talking about. Subaltern classes are those completely outside the main structures of power, so marginalized they no longer have a voice and are subordinated through material, social, linguistic, and cultural forms of dominance. And then later I say, what defines the subaltern is an inability to speak. So to summarize this concept, the idea of the subaltern is that there's groups of people who their experience can't be represented through academic language and symbols. And I would forgive someone if they were to talk about this concept without actually having to sort through that original essay or read a summary of it or read the Wikipedia article of it, because that language is so much clearer than what's in the original essay. Yet, if you talk to anyone in post-colonial theory, this is the most important essay. And actually, having read it and broken it down, it is perhaps deserving of its reputation. It's actually a very interesting idea and one that I develop even further in my book. But I wonder how many people talking about this essay, referencing it, it's cited all throughout post-colonial theory, I wonder how many of them have actually read it and bothered to dig through that language to get the meaning that's there, or how many have just read a summary because it's a lot easier to read the summary. At the same time, I think there's an opposite phenomenon where just like in the earlier story of I Libertine, people will hallucinate a book that didn't exist. And I've had this happen to me. I actually got a long, page-long email from someone who was very upset about a blog post I wrote about incels. They had this long literally a page of writing. I could have printed it and I'm sure it would have been at least one or two pages out of a printer. They were very upset saying I should not associate myself with incels and that it was really bad that I would do that. And I shouldn't write about them. I shouldn't advocate for them. Um, They were very upset with this blog post. The only problem is I've never written a blog post about incels. I, I searched my blog just put the word in and did a search because I thought, did I do it and not remember? I don't know. There's no blog post. So I wrote back. I said, "Um, I don't have a blog post on incels. What are you talking about? And they sent like a short two sentence. Well, I couldn't find it, but you should just be more careful next time. (laughs) It's like, okay, I will be careful not to trigger your schizophrenia and hallucinations in the future. Now, I have seen articles, articles about my first film, American Circumcision, where there are interview subjects that aren't in the film that they claim are in the film. There are moments in the film that aren't in there that they say are there. And then it can come to find out when I uh, message the authors that they haven't even seen the film. 
So I fully think that this phenomenon of people hallucinating things that aren't there or the claiming to have read books that they haven't, seen things that they haven't, I fully believe that happens all the time. And the more social status and prestige a book has, I think the more likely that is. So there are a lot of books that were on social justice reading lists that everyone was told that you should read these because these are really important, that if you want to be a part of the cause of anti-racism or creating a better world, that you need to read these books. And I am 90% sure that most people never read them. Because if you had read them, there are some really interesting ideas in those books that if you were to actually think about and apply, might lead a direction that's a bit different than what people are commonly saying. By the way, I've also had the same phenomenon happen socially, where people will create entire interactions they had with me that never happened, or remember a version of a conversation that's completely different than what I actually said. And there's a famous screenwriter who I have seen some YouTube videos of who told this story once. He said he was at a filmmaking event and he was talking to some people there. And this woman said that she had been groped and harassed by someone in the film industry. And he asked who, and she gave his name. She said that he had groped and harassed her at Comic-Con. And he realized she didn't know that he was the person that she was accusing. And there was a whole group of people there and they were, oh, that's so awful. And how could they do this? And he asked, well, what year did this occur? And she gave him a year. And he said, that's really interesting because I am that screenwriter that you're accusing of doing this. And I wasn't at Comic-Con that year. And he said, the whole room went silent and he just walked out. Now, of course, at the time, this particular screenwriter would then later go on to have several people accusing him of different things. I don't know if that story is true or not. Maybe he created it as a way to dispel other accusations that were occurring. Maybe it's totally true. It's possible that both are true. Very often, two people will be at a particular event and have different perceptions of it. This happens, by the way, even with books or movies that people have read and seen. One of my favorite things to do when I'm feeling down on my own abilities or I'm not sure if it's good enough is I'll go and I'll look at the one-star reviews of some of my favorite books and movies as sort of a reminder that even if I hit the level of what I consider the best, there's still going to be somebody who has a different perspective on it. Now, interestingly, this phenomenon can work for good in the opposite direction, where if everyone's talking about a thing and saying something, it can become true. And this is the second lesson of the story of I Libertine. Because you see, after I Libertine was exposed as a hoax, there was so much talk about the book, so much publicity. And now there was this added publicity of the hoax being exposed. There was so much attention on it, and it was already on the bestseller list, that publishers approached the radio host, Gene Shepard, and said, 
would you like to do a real book called I Libertine? And we'll give you the pen name of this fake author you made up. And in fact, we'll even hire a ghostwriter to write the book for you. And so the hoax was exposed in August. And on September 13th, the real I Libertine book was published with Gene Shepard posing on the back author photo cover as Frederick R. Ewing, looking very prestigious and academic, fully playing into it. So I think there's a second lesson here, which is that if you talk about a thing enough, if you speak about it enough, if you get enough of human consciousness focused on an idea, you can actually speak it into reality. This is the lesson that people who write about the occult or magic have been trying to share with people for thousands of years, that if you speak about a thing, if you focus your conscious on it enough, you can actually draw it into reality. Now, I had a very low-level experience of this when I was working on a film shoot, I want to say like five or ten years ago, and we were doing some videos for a hotel and for a personal development company. And the person who was running the show said, I want you to do something. He said, I want you to talk about everyone else on the show. And anytime the client is around, I want you to say, he's a genius. He's absolute genius. He does genius work. You just use that word genius over and over again. And so we did that every time. Oh, my friend Joe. Joe is a genius. He does absolutely genius work. Never about ourselves, always about our friends, everyone else on the show, who we were all getting paid by the same people. And we did this throughout the show. And by the end, the client was saying, you guys are doing genius. These are just genius work. Genius. Now, we were doing pretty good work. We, we were doing good work. We, we were earning the money, you know. I don't know if it was genius. <laughs> it was good work. It was videos for a hotel, I, but it was good. But because there was so much social proof around the idea that we were doing genius work, because everyone, and you, you know, when you do a film production, you're around these people for like 12 hours a day, right? So they're around 12 hours a day of us saying, oh, that guy's a genius. Everyone around him saying he's a genius. So he must be a genius because everybody's saying it. Just like everyone had, had read I Libertine. They all thought that this was a bestseller. And so, of course, actually, when I Libertine was actually published, it immediately became a bestseller because it had all this hype from the hoax and from everyone talking about it. And I share this because I think there's a second lesson here that if you talk about a thing enough, if you describe it a certain way enough, it will become that in reality. If enough human consciousness is focused on an idea. So I, I share all these stories with you for two reasons. First, I have a book out called Children's Justice. And this book, because of what it is, is going to be a thing that a lot of people talk about. And I think some of them will have actually read it. 
And by the way, I know that this will happen because it happened on my previous nonfiction book, The Intactivist Guidebook. I saw someone on social media, and in fact, I saw more than one person on social media angrily sharing that book with someone that they disagreed with, saying, well, you clearly know nothing about this issue, so you need to educate yourself and read this book. I thought, you haven't read the book, because if you have, you'd know that on the first page, there's a little part that says, who is this book for? And I write, this book is for people who already understand the issue and want to learn what they can do. If you don't yet understand the issue, go watch my documentary. That's the thing to do. So if someone was recommending the book to someone who did not understand the issue, I immediately know that they haven't actually read it themselves. But going back to my latest release, Children's Justice, I know that there will be people talking about this book who haven't read it. And it's really important to know that because this book has things in it that will create a lot of attention and could be easily misrepresented. And like the critical theory that inspired it, there's going to be people who have a lot of strong opinions about it, who maybe don't understand it or haven't read it themselves. And so as you go to talk to people about this book, it's very important that you read it and understand it yourself. Because so often with really important works of writing, of philosophy, of political theory, there becomes a conversation about them that is different than the thing itself. And the thing itself, I believe, is where the actual change is. But there's a second reason I'm telling you all this, and a second lesson here, I think, which is that if you talk about a thing enough, it will become reality. And this is important because as there are people talking about the book who maybe haven't read it or don't understand it, there is also the possibility through that talking to create a new reality about the book. So if you treat this book a certain way, if you treat it as revolutionary, if you describe it as genius, if you leave reviews on Amazon, if you post on social media, if you share things about the book, if you treat this book like it is an important book, like it is revolutionary, like it is a serious intellectual work, over time, others will begin to see and treat it and talk about it the same way. And so know that what you say about it has the power to change reality. And if you want, more people concerned with children's justice, if you want more people to care about children's justice, if you want more justice and a better world for children, you have the opportunity to create that simply through speaking about it. And the way that you speak about it can actually shift others' perception. And so at some point you might be talking to someone and you'll say, oh, I'm reading children's justice. And they'll say, oh yeah, I've read that. I know all about that. And you might ask them a question about it and they'll say something that, if you've read the book, makes you go, hmm, this person might just be pretending, but that's okay 
because at the point in which they feel like they should pretend, it's going to be on the bestseller list. And by the way, even if it's not, it will be eventually if we keep acting enough like it is. Thank you for listening. And thank you for reviewing the book, for speaking about it. For letting others know how genius the work we've done is. And I'll talk to you all later.